And so, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, turn to Romans chapter 1. If you don't have one, there may be one under the row in front of you you can grab and follow along. We are in our third message in this series, and I hope you've been reading along. I hope you've been taking it and kind of just consuming it, letting it kind of just ruminate in your heart and your mind. And Romans is a masterpiece, and it's going to take a lot of understanding, a lot of explaining. When I get done, we're certainly not going to be finished with it or the principle that's in it. And so uh, this message, uh, as we start Romans, I mean, start our scripture this morning, I want to give you a little more context, a little more surrounding about the book of Romans, and uh, so you'll understand uh, some of this uh, thing. It was written by Paul. It's one of the only letters or books of the Bible not contended by uh, biblical scholars and non-biblical scholars. Pretty much it's 100% agreement. Paul wrote this letter, and uh, Paul wrote it under divine inspiration of God uh, through his, on his third missionary journey, and it's considered what the uh, Bible scholars call an epistle. I had someone come up after the early service and told me they didn't even know how to shoot an epistle, so they didn't know what it was, but I just told them an epistle is a famous letter, right? It's just a, it's a letter, basically, uh, written to the region in Rome. There was not a building specific church in Rome. This is just to the region of Rome, the believers that were gathering houses, the very early start of Christianity, and he's just these are believers to that region of Rome. So Romans, as we identified last week, was what we considered a Gentile territory or Gentile nation or non-Jewish. Uh, we don't know exactly how the church at Rome started. Uh, there is a tradition that people believe Peter started it, uh, but Peter is never in the mention in the greetings. He's not mentioned in any of the people that Paul mentions in the letter. And I'm pretty sure uh, if Peter, who was the leader of the apostles, was in Rome, uh, Paul would probably have certainly have mentioned that. It would have been a big deal. And I think we would have seen it here in this letter. But most scholars agree that uh, at the Church of Rome began when some Jews were present at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the gospel was spoken in each language. They got saved. They returned back to the Roman region and began to share the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. By the time Paul wrote this letter, church did contain some Jewish believers, but mostly Gentiles. Uh, It was a predominantly Gentile area and culture, and the believers were coming from uh, the Gentile area. The Romans itself, the culture, let's just say, was very ungodly. It was an immoral society. It was a culture that really got to a point where everyone was doing right in their own eyes. Uh, There was no judgment. There was no consequence. They had really got to a point where they had polytheistic beliefs, many gods. If you made up a god and wanted to believe it, great, that's your god. And your god's no better than my god, all little g, by the way. God's not our god. But any god you want, that's fine. Just don't judge anyone don't, don't, uh, uh, don't hold the line or morality or any uh, type of accountability. Do what you want to do. Whatever makes you happy, there's no consequences, no accountability, and no judgment. And Paul, in the midst of that, was going to write this book of Romans to that kind of culture. And what would Paul say? Would Paul bow to the culture, or would Paul stay true to the teachings of God? Well, I think we're going to find out as we see in our scriptures this morning, that Paul did not bow to the culture. Paul wrote that God is holy, God is righteous, 
God is a judge, and he will judge all unrighteousness. And unfortunately, in our culture today, we can draw some very clear lines to this, what we're going to hear this morning, and also to this Roman culture. To say the concept of God, his holiness, his consequences, and especially his wrath is out of sync with our culture would be an understatement, right? I mean, it's pretty obvious. Even many who claim to be evangelical or claim to be conservative Christians minimize or uh, 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 just don't mention God's wrath. They may say they believe the Bible, but being embarrassed of it or to leave parts out of it uh, is something else. Many times you hear people say, well, I believe in a God of love, and a God of love has no wrath. Even a well-known pastor, pastor of a Southern Baptist preacher, and I'm sure if I mention his name, his father, many of us would have listened to many of his sermons. I've listened personally probably to over thousands of his sermons. A great, wonderful Bible teacher, a solid conservative pastor. Uh, his son, who took up the pulpit, has recently come and said that the Bible's out of touch. The Old Testament is the God of wrath. But when you get to the New Testament, he mellowed out. Now he's a nice God, and he's a good God. And that's why we must unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, right? Don't listen to the Old Testament. Everything we do now has to be based upon what Jesus' words are or what they, what they were. And I most certainly disagree with that statement wholeheartedly. And I also want to ask, when was the last time that you actually read the words of Jesus? Because when you read the words of Jesus, you realize he had more to say about judgment and hell than he had about love or heaven. He said more. And so it's a modern seeking churches desire to draw crowds of people by leaving out or never mentioning judgment or sin or saying things like God will never judge you make sure who you are be who you are love who you are no matter what and don't get me wrong a lot of positive truths in the Bible you've come to our church and you know heard me preach before if you listen to some of my sermons I love to preach the positive truths of God I love to preach his goodness I love to preach about he is a God of love I love to preach all those things but when there's never any mention of the holiness of God or the wrath of God that's where the problem is and really the truth is a half truth is a whole lie if someone will tell you half the truth to gain an advantage or to make you buy or sell or, or to buy something or consume something, it's a whole lie. You would rather have the whole truth rather than a half lie, whether you liked it or you didn't. So you don't change the message for the culture. The culture must change to the message. That's the point. The Bible, the gospel is clear. Paul didn't change it. He didn't change who God was. He didn't change what it says. He didn't fit the culture. And on his first discourse, in the book of Romans, we're going to talk about the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. Now, we have about three chapters of this. And so over 2,000 years later, just like Paul did, we're going to talk about it. Not what we want to hear, but what we need to hear, all right? And so I told you in the very beginning, the introduction of Romans, we're going to dive deep into the depravity of man. We're going to talk about man's sinfulness and God's holiness. So I just encourage you to buckle up your seatbelts. Or seatbelts if you got one. Put one on because the next couple weeks... We're going to dive into this. This morning, we're going to talk about Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Now, I know it's a long portion, but I want to set it into context. And I don't want to cherry pick this, so I want you to get the whole context of what Paul is going to say here. So, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. 
It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God has given, gave them up to uncleanness, in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what, it is, what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as if they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they get, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, and unmerciful. Last verse, verse 32. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. I think if you did not know this was titled the book of Romans, it could easily be titled the book of America, right? I mean, I would have to dare say in our culture today, it's almost like a running commentary. They're pretty much uh, going together on the same track, which reminds every culture or nation that shuns God, rejects God, or every person that does that, they will default to their nature. They will default to sin. And this is a laundry list of sins that violate the standard of God and every person is guilty at some point in their lives. At some point, uh, the very part of the gospel, as I shared with you last week, the A, the admitting, the understanding, or the, uh, the acknowledgement of sin. Religion teaches you are a good person. And you can be better by trying harder. Right? The gospel teaches you are a sinner. You could never be good, and you must believe on Jesus Christ, and he will save you. He will change you. And, and first, I want you to see the importance of this, looking at the wrath of God. Verse 18. You don't hear this verse quoted much, but this is the clearest verse we have talking about the wrath of God in the New Testament. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. God is a holy God. The number one attribute of God is holiness. That means 
He is without defect. He is without sin. In other words, he is not like us, all right? He is not like other gods. He is alone and by himself in a category of no one else. The main attribute of his holiness shows this separation, and out of that holiness, everything else flows. Because he is holy, these other attributes flow from that, like love and grace and mercies, all part of his core holiness, but also wrath and judgment. And these others will flow as well. Because he is holy, there is a default action or characteristic of God, and one of those is God's wrath. When God's holiness is violated, the wrath of God flows. It's just automatic. There's no excusing it. There is no changing it. There's no overriding it. You just can't turn it off. Many times you get people asked the question, why the brutality of the cross? Why would God allow Jesus to die on a cross? He didn't allow him to die on a cross. It was necessary it was necessary because God's holiness had been violated, not by Jesus, but by us, by sinners. And that violation uh, deserved the wrath of God. And on the cross of Christ, he did not take the wrath of God for himself. He did it for you and for me. And the wrath of God is something you cannot change. It's a part of who he is in his innate holiness. Now, man has tried its best to redefine God. We have tried to describe God in other ways. We have tried to God, make God a little more calmer or a little less holy. And what the culture does and what sin does is bring God down to our level. God is not on our level. God is not like you. He's not like me. He's not like anything that's ever been created. He is God. He is holy. He is separate. And he says, what's the trigger? Paul says his wrath is revealed or unleashed or reading impending judgment against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Not some, but all. I think a lot of times we culturally accept certain sins over other sins. Now, obviously, we're going to talk about it here in a minute, and it's going to be an easy one to point out. I'll talk about it a little bit later, but yet... He doesn't just say that sin. He says all sin, all unrighteousness, all this ungodliness is the trigger of God's wrath. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to drill down on this truth of every person being a sinner. What does that mean theologically? What does that mean practically? And what does that mean concerning our salvation? And we're going to talk about it and drill down on it a little bit later. But this morning, I want you to, I want you to see the overview. I want, you to, I want you to see that because of the wrath of God and because it's revealed from heaven upon those who are sinners who have suppressed the truth or rejected the truth of Christ. I know it's not popular, but it's biblical. Listen, part of the glorious good news of the gospel is the bad news, all right? It is that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we are in it under impending judgment without a relationship with Christ. That is the bad news. We are not good people who needs to be better. We are sinful people under the wrath of God that needs to be saved. That's why when people say, what happened to you? They say, I got saved. You say, saved from what? Saved from sin. Saved from the, the penalty of God. Saved from the wrath of God. That's what to be saved from. And that's what Paul wants to make sure we understand 
that those who are unrighteous, those who have sinned, and then look at the last part of verse 18, those who have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, and look at verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, and for God has shown it to them. Paul makes a very bold claim. The bold claim is that no one can stand before God and say, you didn't tell me about this God, right? Like, I don't know this. I don't understand this. Paul qualifies this by saying every person that knows this and suppresses this truth. So these are people who know they are sinners or know they have fallen short, but they pushed it away. They have rejected it. They have chosen to set it aside or not to listen to it. Listen. All, all sinners do not go to hell. If that were the case, there would be nobody in heaven, right? I mean, we are all sinners. Matter of fact, we sang the song Amazing Grace, right? That saved a wretch like me. There is no one who can make this claim. And that's what Paul is saying, that the, the, the glory of God has been declared. Those who suppress that, those who reject that, those who choose their way and their sin over God's way and the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the one that Paul is talking about. Paul says he has made it known to them, but they still reject. That's why it's so important. The first part of the gospel I share was acknowledge. If you are lost, acknowledge that. Say, I know this. I understand in the condition that I am, the choices that I make, I have violated the standard of God. When you suppress that, Paul says there's a downward spiral. Look at verse 20 through 23. This is, this is how powerful his revelation. He says, listen, this is seen since the creation of the world. His invisible attributes were clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Without excuse. Although they knew God, they would not glorify him as God. And look down at verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Look at verse 23. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God to idol worship. Corruptible gods. So he's saying there's an exchange here. The God has been revealed through creation. And I think sometimes for us, we discount the power of God's revelation through creation. I mean, as the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Even the harshest critics, even the God deniers, even those who say there is no God, most of them at some point, even one very famously said, if I saw a clock, I would, must, I would have to admit there was a clockmaker. And he said, there is a world, and there was someone who made this world. They wouldn't say who it was, but we know it was God. Even those who deny God himself must at least acknowledge there is an existence of something that has created this great creation we see. Think about the stars. Think about the moon. Think about individual things you have seen in your life. Think about human life itself. This past week, uh, the lady from First Coast Women's Services came here. She was talking about the power of the human life and the little heartbeat that star starts and the DNA in, these ba in the babies, in the wombs. I mean, it just shouts, there is a God. All through creation, everything says, and Paul says, it's so clear, there is no one who has an excuse. No one. There is no one who can look to God with an excuse, but 
they would rather choose their own way. And it says it became futile in their thoughts, empty, literally what it means. Paul says they were darkened. They were, they were, they were futile in their foolish hearts. And when you think about sin, you think about your own way, it's literally nonsense, right? That's why the Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God because the evidence is undeniable. You must go to an altar, uh, altar conscience to say, I deny all of this even though I see all the facts. That's what he's saying here. And they professed to be wise. They became fools. They exchanged these things for idol worship. And that's what happens. See, it's not that we don't worship. We worship a different God. That's what it is. When you don't worship the one true living God, your heart is incurably religious. You want to worship God. He created you for worship. And when you don't worship God, you replace that with an idol. That's what he says. They replaced it with these, these idols. In the book of Isaiah, we're studying on Wednesday nights. Uh, God is comparing himself to the foolishness of idol worship. He said in that culture they had turned to idols, and God tells him, he says in Isaiah 44, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And he tells the nation of Israel, he says, line them up, bring them out here. Whatever you've been worshiping, he said, let's see it together because when you call on those gods, they won't answer you. They will be an abomination. They are nothing and their work is nothing. And you look to the things of this world that we call gods, that we call out on. Listen, money is a great tool in the hands of God, but it's a terrible God itself. Listen, you get to the end of your life, you're not going to be able to pull out a couple million dollars to keep on living, right? When it comes to money or possessions or comfort, you're not going to be able to, to buy your way out of guilt and shame, you're not going to be able to do those things. They can't answer you. They can't give you peace. They can't give you forgiveness. They can't give you what God gives you. And they are idols that do not save. They are idols that are empty. They are idols that don't deliver. And he said that's foolish to do that because they can't do it. They cannot do what only God could do. Then look at verse 24 through 25. You see this progression. He says, therefore God gave them up to uncleanness. And the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now I must admit there's some fearful statements in the Bible. One for me personally is listening to Jesus talk to his disciples. And he tells them in his discourse, he says that uh, someone comes before him and judgment says, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do works in your names? And Jesus says, depart from me, for I never knew you. That is a fearful statement. I think Brother Gary, when he was sharing his testimony, talking about heart knowledge compared to head knowledge, I think that's a very sobering understanding of the true meaning of faith. Uh, faith is not in your mind, it's in your heart. And that's where it has to be. It must, it must be in the heart. And I think this one is a fearful statement as well. When, when God begins to say he gave them up, some of your Bible translation may say gave them over, it is that God has reached his limit. The holiness of God has been violated so much and people have rejected God for so long, he gives up on them. He turns them over. He says, you wanted it, you pursued it, you've desired it, you can have it. I'm not going to do it anymore, I'm giving it to you. Now, 
for me, that's not a big deal, me personally as a parent, right? I get to that limit pretty quick, right? When your kids make you upset, you're like, all right, you want to try it? Do it, all right? And you turn them over, and you watch them fail, and you're like, okay, now come back and beg forgiveness, right? But let me tell you, when you know God, who in his forbearance, his mercy, and his grace, when he reaches that limit, when he reaches the limit to be able to say, okay, this is what you want, and I'm stepping back. I am going to give you over, what is he giving over? These, this uncleanness. It's the limit of God. They have rejected him. He says, here it is. You can have it. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. and says they would worship, worship the creature rather than the creator. And you see the progression here. It's just spiraling. It's rolling downhill. It starts in the mind. It gets in the heart. It gets in the, your works and your life, and your, you desire these things, and it becomes progressive because sin is never satisfied. It always wants more. It always desires more. It wants your mind. It wants your heart. It wants your actions, and you fully become consumed by sin. You push God away. You reject God. You reject his revelation. Reject any type of understanding of God in your life. This really shows you the depravity of man. This shows you the heart that's desperately wicked. This shows you the part that we don't like to look at. We like to dress up. We like to come to church. We like to look holy. We like to look righteous. But listen, this is our hearts. This is our hearts without God. This is our hearts without the gospel of Christ. And he said, this ain't the end of it. It even goes deeper. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. There it is again. He gave them up the vile passions. For even the women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, the men, leaving the natural use of a woman, burning their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty and the error which was due. And even as if as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. There it is again, same phrase. Over to a debased mind. Some of yours may say reprobate mind. To do those things which are not fitting and then he just hits the laundry list, unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. What a list. See, it just doesn't stop with the ones we like or we don't like. It covers the whole ground. It covers all of them. And he says, those who know this judgment of God but practice these things, that's the key word, not occasionally done these or is a Christian struggling with these things, but someone who openly, currently, consistently rejects God practices these sins. That is someone who he says deserving of death or deserving of the judgment of God, which we know sin is judged by death. Spiritual death and physical death entered into our creation because of the fall of man, because of sin. And because of that, he says, not only that, but those who approve of them who practice them. I mean, that, that qualifies just about anyone who was willing to reject, cover, hide, or push away the truth of God. To fulfill man's unrighteousness is what he's saying. And, and knowing the righteous judgment of God. And once again, like I said, this is not unwillful. This is not unknowing. And I know when you preach Romans chapter 1, first person, you say, what about the person in Africa that's never heard of God, pastor? 
I don't want to say, what about the 5 billion other people who has heard about God, right? This is what this is talking about. The majority of this is what we are, what we are discerning. And Paul is unpacking these things. And he says, those who consistently suppress that, push this away, and abandon God, the result is he turns them over to their own way. Not only that, but those who approve it. That's why it's important as a Christian, important as a church, important as those who know God. We must not hate the sinner. God does not hate the sinner. Listen, if if God hates the sinner, none of us would ever be saved. You know what the Bible says? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That God loved us. He loves the sinner, but he doesn't love those who practice sin and reject God. And listen, in our own lives, as we look to them, we, we must realize that if we look upon this, we must hold the same standard as the Word of God. It's not our righteousness. It's not our standard. It's God's standard. And listen, like I said, it's easy to point these out. Obviously, the homosexuality. Obviously, some of the other ones we can all point out. And those are hot-button topics that socially everyone likes to jump on. But they don't say much about adultery. They don't say much about fornication. They don't say much about anger. They don't say much about the the covetousness or the ungratefulness or any of those things because those have become socially acceptable. But what you realize about the gospel, nobody gets a pass. They are all the same in God's eyes that, that we have transgressed this holy God and the wrath of God is poured out on all unrighteousness, every single one of them. And if we continually, continually reject that, then we will be under the wrath of God as we are already. But it will be unleashed on us and God will give us over consistently, currently, if we pursue that over God. Listen, some of you have experienced as you go to the doctor. And recently I've been going to the doctor more. Only problem is every time I go to the doctor, he finds something wrong with me. I'm like, man, how many things can you find wrong with me? Blood pressure, cholesterol, these things like, and then you realize if you don't fix these things, you're going to die quicker, right? Like, so you're like, all right, I, I'm getting to the point where my days are numbered, you know, like my years are getting dwindling away. And I want to try to keep as many as I can, all right? Like, I want to keep as many as I can. And so you must realize you got to treat them. Well, sometimes you go there and you get a diagnosis, right? And that diagnosis from that doctor sometimes is terrible. Matter of fact, some of you in this room have went to the doctor and they come back and said, you're, we ran the test and you have cancer. Man, that is a shocking diagnosis. That is something that shocks you, jars you to your core. That's something that can rattle your faith and put you to the test. And I've even heard of people uh, who has testimonies that when they literally heard the diagnosis, they fell to the floor and cried because of the C word. Like they want, did not want to hear that. But say the diagnosis said you had cancer and the doctor says, but the good news, it's curable. We have, a disease, we have the cure, and we are able to cure that cancer. But before he can tell you what it is, you storm out of that office. And you get on the phone, and you get on social media, and you talk about, don't ever go to this doctor. He's, a, he's, he's, he's judgmental. He's crazy. He, he, I was having a great day, and my birthday's next week, and my life is perfectly fine. And he had the nerve to tell me that I had cancer. What is wrong with that doctor, right? He could have kept his mouth shut. 
Why did he have to tell me the bad news? No one wants to hear that you have cancer. He should have just shut up and you don't want to hear it. And say you even said, I'm never returning again. Well, several years later down the road, you collapse on the floor. You're rushed to the hospital and they look at you and say, did you know you have cancer? It's spread all over your body and there is nothing we can do for you. You might say, well, that's crazy. Why in the world would someone be so upset at diagnosis when there was a treatment? When there was actually a solution to what they had, the doctor told them the truth, and yet they still did not want to hear about the cure. Well, listen, when people hear the diagnosis from the Bible about our sin, it's sobering. It's jarring sometimes. It's shocking sometimes. We like to think we're good people. We have been told by our culture we are good people. We want to be good people. We desire to be good people. But when we understand what the gospel says, why we were sinners or why we are sinners, and we, there is not any good in us, it's shocking. Sometimes we leave churches. We say, I'm never going to listen to that pastor again. Sometimes we leave families and say, my parents are so judgmental. Sometimes we leave narrow, uh, call people judgmental, narrow-minded. Sometimes we leave friends and say, how dare them? How dare them tell me that I have this sin in my life? Or how dare them say the word of God says it? And they turn against the diagnosis. But one day they die. And they die to stand before the Lord. And he looks and says, are you going to stand on your own righteousness? And say, yes. And they stand on the, before a holy God, and they miss the mark. Listen, God's holiness is perfection. No one hits the bullseye. No one makes it. And yet, at that moment, it's too late. It's too late because the cure had been rejected, and God's wrath fully comes to pass. And then, as you see this in God's truth, don't be like that. Don't come this morning and hear the diagnosis and think, I'm going to storm out of here. The Bible calls me a sinner, or the Bible says what I'm doing is sin, and that's bad news. I don't want anything to do with a God like that because I'm telling you, when you leave this place, you stand before a God one day, and you stand before Christ, there's a cure. And if you are saved, if you call on the name of Jesus, if you acknowledge you have, if you have fallen short, listen, we, did you know the number one song that we sing in churches, funerals, and anywhere else there's a Christian type of gathering is Amazing Grace. Did you know that? And we sang that song this morning, Amazing Grace, that saved a wretch like me, right? Like, that's the admittance to understanding the diagnosis, but praise God, there's a cure that I'm not a sinner under the wrath of God. I've called on the name of Jesus he took my sin. He took my wrath. And now I stand righteous before God because of what Christ has done for me. Don't stop the diagnosis. Don't push God away. That's why Paul, when he finally got it, and we read this verse last week, but it's so powerful when you put it in the context of what he, what he follows up this verse with, which we read this morning. He says this, For I am not ashamed. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, meaning that I was a sinner. I hated God. I persecuted Christians. I was the worst of the worst. But I'm not ashamed to say that 
because of the gospel or the good news of Christ, it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, meaning that he heard the diagnosis, he believed in Jesus Christ, and he called on his name to be saved. And he says, for that, I am not ashamed. And this morning, as you hear this diagnosis, you don't have to be ashamed either. You don't have to be ashamed. You can know Christ and be saved from your sin, and you can have this blessed assurance that comes with that to know what Christ has done on your behalf for your sin. Let's pray together this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we do come before you, Lord. God, I do pray for our hearts. Lord, maybe somebody's in here and they're struggling. They're saying, man, I did try religion. I tried really, really hard. Religion's not going to make it for you. Maybe you tried this world and said, man, my heart has been empty and bare, and I've been seeking for purpose and meaning in the world and the things of the world. There's nothing that can take the place of God. Or maybe you're here this morning, you're just under severe guilt and conviction, and you know you've missed the mark. And the devil's been beating you up, accusing you, pointing fingers at you. And now you understand the Holy Spirit has convicted you because you need to know Christ. And maybe this morning is your morning to be able to call in the name of Jesus. The bad news is only bad news if you let it stop there. The bad news is the greatest news you'll ever hear in your life because you can come to know Jesus Christ. And this morning, you can admit that. Just say, I admit I'm a sinner. But I believe in Jesus Christ and I call on his name to be saved. The ABCs of the gospel, that's simple. And this morning, the Bible says, for all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this morning, you don't have to walk down here and talk to me. You can confess Christ right where you sit. Prayer is talking to God, just like you talk to another person. Just lift your heart and say, dear Jesus, I'm calling on your name to save me. This morning, you can become saved. Or maybe you're here this morning, your heart's heavy for someone in your life. Maybe you're holding that standard and you look to the word of God. Don't let your heart get bitter. As Christians, we should never hate the sinner, ever. We should not hate people. God loves people. God loves God loves people, and he has sacrificed for them, and we should have the same heart. And this morning, maybe you need to pray for someone and just say, I hold the standard, but I want to pray for this person. I want to pray they come to know Christ. Many times we look to people and we judge them, but yet they're only acting in their nature, and we need to pray that they get saved. We need to pray that their heart is changed. They, they, don't act, they don't act saved because they're not saved, and you need to pray, God, please save them. Maybe you're here this morning, you are a Christian, but you've been struggling with some of these sins. Listen, the Bible says when you come to Christ and you repent of your sins and you're trusting in the Lord, he changes you. And your desires must not consistently pursue those things of the world. This morning, maybe you can say, I don't need to pursue those things anymore. I need to set those aside. I need to get on, get on track with serving God and be, become uh, pursuing the Lord this morning. And listen, as we have this time of invitation and commitment, we're going to play a song. And I pray right where you sit, you'll just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. It's like two minutes long. And just lift your heart up to the Lord and say, Holy Spirit, here it is. Here's my heart. And I'll be obedient. I'm going to trust in you. Whatever you put on my heart, that's what I'm going to do this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.